Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Petronas Podcast. Um, I say this every time, but I am super pumped today. It is uh, Friday, October 6th, if I am correct. Um, Friday, October 6th, 2023. This is episode 98 of Petronas Podcast. We're getting super close to 100. Um, and I am delighted to have a guest with me today uh, and a friend and colleague, um, Tad True. He is the vice president of Bridger Pipeline um, and a part of the the family suite of True Companies. So, Tad, uh, welcome to the Petronas Podcast. Thank you, Tricia. Great to be here. Yeah, and um, Tad did tell me that this is his first podcast, so this is a pretty exciting thing for me. Um, so I have to make this awesome for Tad, um, so that all the other podcasts that he's on um, will just pale in comparison to the awesomeness of the Petronas Podcast. Um, so, Tad, we'll have a number of things that I want to cover with you today. Things that, you know, from the, you, you are, you know, you can explain a little bit of, of the Bridger Pipeline and, you know, your suite of, of stuff throughout the Rockies. So, obviously, this is an opportunity, I think, to talk about Wyoming, to talk about North Dakota production, to talk about pipeline situation in the Rockies and production. Um, but before that, I want to timestamp this with, um, we've had a pretty wild swing in oil prices. Would love your comments and feedback if you have anything you want to comment on that, because we're 82.36 right now for WTI. And I just want to remind people that we, we were at 94, like September 27th. So we've had a rapid swing up and a really rapid swing down. And uh, the market sentiment on this is pretty interesting. Um, Brent is 80, 84. That's, we've lost like 30, thir 13 bucks on Brent from September 27th to yesterday, which is pretty incredible. Henry Hub, though, that's the great story for everyone, I think, is Henry Hub is 328 today. Um, so when you're starting to see threes on Henry Hub, that's that's pretty exciting, I think, for the business. Um, Dutch TTF is at 1120. I think we're starting to see this edge up a little bit on gas for um, European natural gas. Um, and then the 30-year, you know, the big story today, actually, in the market is the jobs report, um, which was way, way bigger than expectations. Expectations were 170,000 jobs added, and today was over 300,000. And so the 10-year yield is reflecting that. It's at 4.81%. Interestingly enough, the, the ticker on the 30-year mortgage, on, at least on CNBC, is not showing it up, but I think we're going to see that go up. So 10-year yield and the U.S. mortgage are tied closely together. And yeah, that's 4.81% uh, on the 10-year yield. Obviously, that's having wreaking havoc in the whole market, and we've got debt issues and craziness in Washington and people losing their minds. Um, so a lot of the global backdrop or macro backdrop. Tad, do you care to, uh, you know, talk about the state of oil price? Maybe you can comment on, you know, oil prices in the context of North Dakota light sweet, uh, Wyoming prices, like any of that you want to tackle? Sure. <clears throat> Obviously, uh, oil prices have a direct effect on our customers. Uh, as a federally regulated pipeline, we issue tariffs and those are, you know, those rates are, uh, you know, we can't change them on a month to month basis. So we're not directly affected by as a pipeline, we're not directly affected by the by the old price, but it does it does matter to our customers, which means it matters to us. The uh, <clears throat> the you know, the, and the oil prices that our producers get um, now that there's a and I don't mean to overwhelm the conversation here, but now that there's oh, a surplus ahead. of pipeline, you know, pipeline capacity out of the out of North Dakota. Um, oil prices are basically, I mean, it's, you effectively get a direct WTI price back in, back in North Dakota. It's no longer the, you know, 10 years ago, um, there was discounts of like 10 to 15 to 20 yeah. in some cases, like, for, you know, 40 bucks to the world, you know, compared to the world prices. So the, the, the infrastructure has come in, it's there, there's, it's, an, um, the, it's over piped, <laughs> I would argue. Um, and but that's a, a huge benefit to our our customers, which encourages them to drill and, you know, increase overall throughput. So, so if, if we happy. can back up us, uh, well, that's great. And we can back up a smidge and give people a lay line. I mean, you know this, I've, I've worked with you on past projects and, um, you know, you were, Tad was actually on the board of the Energy Policy Research Foundation when I was there. Um, so Tad and I know each other from from quite a while ago, back in the days of the, Long you know, time. the create craziness of the midstream side, which when, yeah, WTI and, and Brent were completely, those differentials were blown out and North Dakota Light Suite was blown out. And yeah, it's a completely different world today where you actually are, 
I, I didn't see the prices today, but sometimes you're actually getting a premium on North Dakota Light Suite. Um, I don't know what you're getting in Guernsey today, but I'm guessing it's pretty close to WTI. And with that Brent WTI spread narrowing, obviously you're getting you know very close to global oil prices. But you know the major systems from my and it's still the case is you know you have Dakota Access, which was the big big win for North Dakota in terms of really helping on this pricing side of having ample pipeline capacity, and that just kind of also coincided with you got Dakota Access, got Flow, but and you have your pipeline system, which I would love to talk about, you know volumes and stuff. But then you also had COVID happen and a collapse in you know for at least a short collapse in production and this real sort of change in the Rockies where if you're looking at, I think public and private operators within the Rockies um, you know, I love the, I, I, Listeners know I absolutely love the Bakken. I think the rock is phenomenal. I've had Harold Ham on the podcast. We've talked about it. Um, and I love the powder as well for, for different reasons. But, you know, we have now a much more seasonal regiment of drilling and completion activity in North Dakota. Um, so you're not drilling. It's not drill baby drill. Um, acreage is held by production. And you have a lot of public operators that have held their acreage. And a lot of those operators have, you know, moved into the Permian, et cetera. So with that being said, you, you have ample pipeline capacity now out of North Dakota. I believe production in North Dakota is about 1.2 million barrels a day. And I want listeners to appreciate is like people have lost a lot of love, I think, for the Rockies. And it's just a nice, I mean, it's sad because it's such steady production. I mean, North Dakota production is great. If you look at decline curves in North Dakota, they're, they do they did fantastic over the past year. They've actually, productivity is up. Um, so, and you don't see that, you don't see that in the powder necessarily. Uh, productivity is not holding up. But I mean, North Dakota, you are. So it's just, a, I think the production story is, um, you know, pretty incredibly resilient despite everybody saying we're running out of acreage and we don't have enough inventory and we're losing our minds. And uh, when I talk to people in North Dakota and especially folks like yourselves, that is never the case. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's, it's amazing to me. It's, it's, uh, I actually, you know, like reading the news where they say it's a mature basin. There's no more, you know, there's no more growth, you know, cause that, that keeps, you know, keeps other people away. Um, I'm sure our operators like our customers like it as well. You know, the producers, um, because what, you know, what, what we're seeing is, yeah, you know, the, it's, you know, gone from 1.1 to 1.2. It's not a huge, you know, huge growth, right. uh, figure, but it's, what's, what's interesting is if you get into the like county by county production numbers, you know, Dunn County is surging, you know, while some other counties are, are, are dropping. Um, and so it's, a it's, it's, you know, we have the, the, benefit of having some some great customers that really know how to uh, uh, drill their acreage and they're aggressive. Um, it's fun trying to keep up with them. Um, but overall, like, you know, we're continuing, as, at least from a pipeline standpoint, we're continuing to, to grow, you know, grow tremendously. And, um, you know, we're, we're pretty excited about it. Um, are you, can you talk about rough flow volumes and system volumes. I mean, so we know we have Dakota access. I don't know that, you know, I know the na nameplate capacity, but um, rough, like, I mean, we have Dakota access. We've got, you can go through Enbridge and you can go into the Midwest. Obviously those used to be huge issues. Those are no longer bottlenecked nearly as much because of all the, the build out the Enbridge did, but your system goes from North Dakota down into Wyoming and then you go into Guernsey and that can then flow into Colorado, which then goes into Cushing, Oklahoma. Right. Right. Yeah. So and, we, yeah, go ahead. So just to, just to give kind of just an overview, um, effectively, we have a large, uh, very large gathering system in North Dakota, um, feeds our trunk line that goes down, like you said, into Montana, into, uh, into Guernsey, Wyoming. We also have a large, uh, uh, but not as big as North Dakota by any means. We have a large gathering system in Wyoming in the powder, which also feeds into Guernsey. And then, um, in terms of our, our assets, we also own 25% um, of uh, Liberty Express, which is the parent company of Pony Express, and that feeds into the mainland that feeds into uh, uh, Cushing, Oklahoma. Okay. So you guys have, I mean, you guys have a major system, and then you have access into a major, obviously, into Cushing. So, um, right. And that, that's... Uh, I mean, do you care to share that of the, I would love your perspective of the jarring story between pre-COVID. I had Chris Atherton recently on the podcast and I, I bring people on and I think the story of sort of the pre-COVID to now is, is, um, would be interesting to hear from a mid-spring perspective, especially in the Rockies. Um, obviously the, the story of the Rockies 
you know, well before COVID, you said 10 years ago, we had these massive differential blowouts and we're all trying to find pipeline capacity. Um, and, you know, in the DJ, we, we didn't have enough pipeline capacity and then everybody builds pipeline capacity and then we have enough and that's great. And the differentials come in and, and it's, it's nice. But I'm curious, it's like pre-COVID, COVID and now, what, how, how big are and how jarring and how crazy was all that for you? Uh, COVID is an experience I'd never like to re relive. Um, <laughs> we, we actually, um, in 2019, uh, again, Bakken production was continuing to go up. I think it even hit 1.4. Um, at some point I, the, you know, the numbers escape me right now, but, um, it was, it was a, a again, a, a, a huge, huge growth story. And, um, you know, Dakota access had been built, but it still wasn't enough. And then, so we were on the, in the process of trying to compete um, with the rest of the, uh, rest of the pipeline operators. Um, and then in 2009, we full, we, uh, commercialized, um, a very large build for true companies as built, you know, biggest project we've ever done. Um, we FID the project with our partner in 2000, June of 2019. Um, the project was basically to build, you know, new steel from North Dakota to Guernsey. That would have been, you know, our, um, our piece, and then we had had a joint venture with uh, uh, with Philip sixty six um, to build a Guernsey to um, a new piece of pipe from Guernsey to uh, Cushing, and then there was a related um, there was a related project, uh, and that was the original Liberty project to go from Guernsey to Cushing, and then a related project called Red Oak to go from Cushing to uh, Corpus Christi. And we commercialized that, uh, FID'd it, um, ready to go, and then COVID hit. And, you know, we were already under construction, at least on our 100% owned piece. We, um, so we were, um, you know, building close to 400, five, you know, 450 miles worth of 20 and 16 inch. Um, we were well under construction. Um, when COVID hit, uh, Liberty hadn't yet been, I mean, we'd been spent spending a ton of money. We'd bought steel, uh, we've bought right away. We've done permitting, we've done all this stuff. Um, and then March of 2020 came and, you know, we had to halt all capital expenditures. Um, unfortunately, and, you know, a couple months later, um, you know, some of our producers went bankrupt or some of our uh, customers went bankrupt. Some of our, um, uh, you know, our partners were, you know, kind of wavering on whether or not we should do it. We should just cut, cut our losses. And then in, uh, you know, June of 2020, we ended up, you know, just stopping the project altogether all and just trying to reassess, you know, what, what we had to do. Um, and that was obviously a pretty, uh, uh, you know, it's pretty sad at that point. Yeah. <laughs> um, but because we were, you know, from a capital standpoint, we were pretty much halfway through our capital spend by, you know, June of, uh, uh, June of 20. And we had, um, you know, with the project, effectively the project canceled. Um, we had no commercial contracts, you know, supporting anything. So we had to recommercialize the entire prospect we found a new partner, which is uh, in in, uh, in Tallgrass, and that relationship has been great. Um, you know, and and we've been um, kind of going ever since. It's so you know, in the middle of COVID, I think back and like you know, everybody's you know on these WebExes. We were working seven days a week to try to like you know save save the yep. project, and it was an incredibly incredibly stressful time. It was a something I never want to relive because, you know, when, when you, when you go through half your capital spend and you have nothing, yeah. you know, come out of it with nothing, you know, nothing yep. to show, show for it. That's uh that's, you know, tends to make people sad. So. Yes. I, I think, um, well, that's a great, I mean, I appreciate you sharing that. And I, I remember being in, I actually remember being in meetings with you years and years ago and you, you gave me the, I think it was something you said. It's like, it's like, kit, you know, things were like kittens and roses and daisies. And then, you know, fast four or five years and those kittens and roses and daisies are all gone um, and the Skittles are gone. And I think that that COVID time was um, I, it's important to share that stuff because I think a lot of people on the outside of the 
not super close either to the midstream or, or even the production side or anything, don't appreciate how jarring that state of the business was. I mean, because all of us, if you had a business, sure. clients went to zero, money went to zero, work went to, you know, you're working 13 hours a day, seven days a week to just survive um, and hang on and pray that the the light is shining at the at, at the, somewhere down the tunnel, the light shining. And it, it was absolute hell. Um, so when you went through all that and then you're, you come out on the other side, obviously there's a, you know, and things are looking great now are looking much better now. Um, and that was, that wasn't fun, but I mean, you could, you're on the pipeline side and I thought we, everybody heard, I think a lot of listeners probably heard, you know, when prices went negative is that, you know, pipelines were used as storage and the pipelines were completely full. And, you know, that was part of the, they were all used as storage. Was that the case? It one. Do you, do you agree with that? And two, what, what, were you actually being used that way? Or were you full uh, and just like waiting to like, we can't go into Cushing because we're packed? Well, if it, I mean, physically, our, our pipes are always full. That's just how, how, how they operate. Right. And, um, you know, we went from, um, you know, it, 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 at least in our case, production just got shut in. Like our- right. And that happened uh, quickly in North Dakota. Yeah. And, and they just- you know, our throughput went, uh, you know, it went, it didn't go to zero, but it went, it might as well have, um, we, we were, uh, you know, our engineers, what was interesting was our engineers were actually looking at our pumps and saying, look, you know, we, let's say our, you know, throughput dropped by 80% in a, in a month, just, just an example. Our engineers were like, we can't run our pumps as slow. We just can't, they, 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 they can't run this slow. And so we had a, um, <clears throat> we had, a, we had jumped through a lot of hoops just to get, you know, keep whatever production production yeah. we had, you know, moving. Um, the one thing I'll also say that I missed last time was that we were under construction of, uh, one of our, one of our wholly owned main lines. And so we had a tremendous amount of cash just exiting the door. And when everybody shut their production in, we had no cash coming in. Yep. And that was, um, that was, a, a yeah, it was a pretty scary time. Yeah. I can't, I can't imagine. And, um, well, obviously you got through it, um, and you guys stuck through it and you are, um, are you fourth generation oil and gas, Tad? Uh, third. Third. Okay. I'm third generation oil and gas too. So it, I, I think it was probably a little bit easier for some of us who were like, you know, know the booms and busts. Yes. It was absolute hell. I've never experienced that, but you know, you kind of knew that, Hey, you're in this business. I, I don't see the, the true family just being, okay, throw in the towel. We're out of oil and gas, um, and walk away. So I, I, I do respect that. So what is the, so you're, you're, let, 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 let me say what? this, Trisha though. Uh, yeah, we've gone through a lot of boom and bust, but I don't think anybody's in history's had a bust like that one. No, no one in history had a bust like that. And also, and that's, I mean, to the, for for the production side, I think it is really important to point out the shut in. And I say this because, you know, I was talking with um I was talking with folks within OPEC um at the time of this this shut in, you know, production. It was it was months after, but it's in COVID when we're doing all the Zoom calls. And um and I, I had some calls with, you know, folks that I work with in Oxford and, and otherwise and um but there were there were folks within OPEC and related entities and there was a lot of questions around like production in the US and there was a big surprise on like the production coming back and I thought I was really shocked to hear this and I remember you probably listened to EOG's earnings calls and other earnings calls where they're like hey shut in the production turn it back on got a little bump in production and I mean Wall Street analysts are like wow look at that production growth and I'm like it's not it's not okay it's not like growth this is what's what happens you shut in this production and by the way we've never shut in unconventional oil before we've never shut in right. you know horizontal these these you know these unconventional production in north dakota and all of a sudden we shut it in i mean in north dakota it was fast everybody's like shut this shut this stuff in and naturally you're going to get a production bump that pressure is going to build up and so you turn those wells on you're going to get a little little pop um, and it was kind of amazing because I realized that one, Wall Street analysts are not engineers, um, nor do they know anything about basic production. And I also was I was really shocked, though, to hear 
the foreign perspective, and I'm not saying everyone, but I, I think, you know, OPEC admittedly said they, you know, publicly that they were shocked about the growth in, in U.S. production. And it really made me appreciate, um, as you and I have talked about this offline before um, and in the past, is that I, I don't think they really understand deeply U.S. production. Um, but the fact that they were shocked that, you know, we shut in this production and we turn it back on, maybe they were shocked that we turned it back on, uh, but they shouldn't have been shocked that, uh, it would come back, you know, I mean, it's not like we killed these wells or anything. They just, we just had never shut them in before. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I, you know, and I still don't, I still don't have an appreciation for like, what does a shut in do for, you know, horizontally fracked well. I just, uh, I, I simply don't, I'm not a geologist. I, I, you know, right now the production seems to be surging. Um, I think it's, it's been, it's been, you know, it's been great recently, but like, I do remember, I, Actually, you know, coming out of COVID, um, you know, we also had a surge in capacity and, uh, you know, from a, you know, from our standpoint, it was just a welcome relief to, just to get oil flowing back through the line. Yep. Yeah. And and helping all those engineering problems that you were having and just keeping, you know, right. the pumps going. Yeah, I can I can only imagine. So, all right. So that that all you know that happened. Production's flowing again. When does th when do things start? Um, I'm sure it took a little while to get back to your your volume. But when does things start really recovering to where it's like okay? Because I mean the the story with I I always walk people through this, especially with the Permian. Um, you know the post COVID story um, and during COVID was actually the private operators. Um, you know, private companies like yourselves, actually, you guys have a little bit of a, not you, but you, True has a little bit of production and, and drilling, but a lot of private companies actually saw the price signal, were ready to go. And while Publix had all lost their minds and, and they were dealing with the jarring of COVID, they were trying to tell the story to the street, but they were also inundated with, with boardroom craziness and, you know, an energy transition and green stuff. And the privates are like, hey, look at oil prices, let's go. And I believe there was, you know, the folks that were really early to this did capture a lot of savings. I mean, you know this, like rig rates were exceptionally low. I mean, if you were completing, if, if you were doing stuff during the during 2020 or even 2021, you were getting pretty low rates. Um, so, and the Rockies though, didn't quite see as much of that because again, we talked about most folks in North Dakota held their acres by production. There were a lot of publics there, but there were some privates. It just, we don't have as many private companies as prolific as we say, as say in the Permian Basin where they kind of really ramped up. So I'm just curious how, like how you saw that, what was the perspective there and, and sort of coming out of that, getting that activity to come back. Uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, you, most of our customers are, or were, uh, public. Mm -hmm. Um, one of our customers is recently, um, gone private. Um, but like, you know, they're all, you know, each one has a different view, you know, uh, you know, I'll, I'll say, you know, one of them has a, you know, uh, is a global major. They have, you know, capital allocation decisions to make, you know, do we, do we invest more in the in the Permian? Do we invest more in the Bakken? Um, others are more just Bakken focused. Right. Um, that's you know the 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 ladders you know kind of who, who we saw step up first. Um, you know those types of companies. I mean the larger companies with the with the uh, you know that had the ability to allocate capital uh, um, you know between different basins. Um, those were probably the slower ones to come back. Right. Um, the, the public, public companies that, you know, were primary Bakken focused, they were simply a lot quicker because yep. that's what they had. Right. And they probably were able to cap capitalize on some nice gains when activity slow. Um, and they're able to like I bring so. stuff in. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope so too. Um, so, uh, so let's talk about Wyoming a little bit. Um, obviously you're sitting in Casper, Wyoming, um, yep. um, which is awesome. Um, I am, I was born, listeners know I was born in Cheyenne, was not raised there, um, but, but very proud to call Wyoming home and do need to get back home closer um, than Denver, Colorado. Um, but that being said, so you're sitting in Wyoming, you know, I worked, I worked at Anchu's Exploration, um, was a manager of strategy and analytics for 20, 2019 through 2020 before the COVID craziness. Um, and then that changed, but I mean, I ripped apart, you know, I knew the Powder River Basin really well. Um, new, you know, for every single turn of well, you guys are obviously, you know, you're in the powder, you have a gathering system and the pa Wyoming production is a whole unique animal in itself. Um, and the powder, I, I don't know if you listened to Harold Ham's podcast, but he, that I had with him on and he talked about the powder and, you know, you can see his eyes light up because every geologist loves the powder. Um, 
it's a very geologically complex play in my opinion, my humble opinion. Um, it's hard, but there's also gets people really excited. Um, and I've, you know, Wyoming production is at 262,000 barrels per day. I've just looked on EIA. Um, so it's sort of like went down and come back and it, it hasn't like, you know, ripped off the map or anything, but I mean, you guys are exposed in the powder. That's a, that is a completely different animal. And, you know, as you were mentioning, um, you're, I always tell people it's important to pay attention to individual operator behavior. And just because they're all public doesn't mean they think like, or even just because they're all private does not mean they think like, or, or make decisions similarly. Um, but the private's a unique animal where you do now have, well, I guess you've got big, privates like Continental and Anschutz. Um, you have a, you used to have some publics, but it's been a unique play with privates that were really the private equity model. And now these bigger privates, um, you know, maybe you can talk a little about that evolution. And also, is it, where is it kind of sitting right now? Is it, do we have the steady eddy where we have, you know, Anschutz is, is strong enough in the play. I'm going to have Joe Dominic on the podcast. So we'll follow up with that. But is it really steady? Do we have enough of, you know, Continental resources being bigger and steady as well to really sort of help this you know, work through the times and work through the system and, and where we don't have to freak out if our prices go to 60 and everybody loses their mind that we can just sort of ride the course and this is going to be um, maybe not, you know, a 700,000 barrel day play, but it's going to, you know, continue to, to bring activity and growth. Okay, so <clears throat> let, let, me, let me start with just basic differences between the Bakken and the powder. Yeah, and, yeah, have at it. Like, They're huge. When, when, as a, as a pipeline operator that builds gathering systems and when we're building a gathering system in North Dakota, for, you know, to a Bakken well, we pretty much, we pretty much know what we're going to get. You know, that's, it's, you know, a big, generally they're big pads. They're, you know, uh, eight well pads or 10 well pads, whatever, you know, whatever, whatever it might, might be, you know, we can dial that in. We, and we see that as a lower, you know, from our standpoint, at least a lower risk. Um, uh, lower risk because we, we just, it's, it's so much more homogenous, you know, throughout, right. the, throughout the basin, you get to the powder and as a pipeline operator, uh, let me, let me say this, uh, as a pipeline operator, uh, I don't like complex geology. I like, yeah, I like, the, you do I not. like the Bakken, you know, yep. you like stability, <laughs> I, predictability, repeatability. We know this, right. we're comfortable with this. Right. And, uh, you know, I know our exploration guys, uh, uh, get equal, you know, equally love it, but, uh, uh, you know, from our standpoint, it's, you know, are we going to get a, you know, um, you know, uh, 250,000 barrel EUR well, or are we going to get a, you know, 500,000 barrel, you know, you, we just don't know. And we have a hard time, you know, you know, we have a hard time. It's, I mean, we'll, we, we go and do it because we're, you know, we're, we're taking, we will take that risk and especially um, on the operators that we trust and do a lot of business with. Right. Um, we understand that, but that's, it's, it's not as, um, I, th I feel like we have to um, scrutinize um, our, our, our level, uh, I guess you call it our margin of safety in the powder is a lot lower than Right. It is in, in the in the Bakken when we take that when we take that capital risk on. Um, do you think you guys being I mean, Wyoming born and bred and being there, being next to the powder, it's hard to resist, you know, and I mean, that's a part of it. You're right there. Um, you also know the companies I mean, some of those companies are rollovers. You got Continental is in North Dakota yep. as well as in Wyoming. I mean, um, I mean, had you guys not been there? That I, I always kind of wonder sometimes the evolution of like other company. It might have been harder to get some of that stuff built because um, of that, you know, the upfront risk there. I mean, you're, you're gambling on it a little bit. Yeah, and 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 actually, you know, quite honestly, the uh, the Powder River Basin is, is, I would argue, is probably a lot more competitive. Um, one uh, uh, CEO of a competing pipeline told me, you know, he. He, he was laughing. Uh, he was laughing about it. He goes, you know, the powder is really a has three pipelines in a, you know, three pipelines in a one pipeline basin. And which is, you know, which is yeah. pretty, pretty true right now. Um, <clears throat> the powder is going to have to grow, you know, significantly for, you know, um, all of us to make money. Um, and, you know, it, it just has, it has to ramp up, you know, significantly before, you know, before we do, but. But it's still, you know, the Bakken was at the same level. I remember 
when the Bakken uh, or North Dakota product production was less than a hundred thousand barrels a day. Yep. And you know, people started showing these, you know, these growth charts of like 600,000 barrels a day. And I was just like, no, you guys are absolutely on, you know, crack, you know, this is, this is ridiculous. And now, you know, now we're at 1.2 and it's steady at 1.2. Yep. So it, you know, if they can figure out, and, and the other thing I'll, I'll say about the powder that's different is the North Dakota has a lot more well-capitalized um, exploration companies drilling up there in, in the, in the powder, there seems to be a lot more capital constraints on some of our producers. So when somebody likes, when a well-capitalized producer like Continental comes in, or whether it's Anschutz or, you know, and Anschutz has been there for, for quite a long time, um, it's exciting to see what they, you know, what they can come up with because, you know, they just bring a better, uh, they bring a, a better balance sheet. They bring a better, um, more capital to the, to the basin. And, you know, instead of, you know, and I'll just uh, give you an example. I, I gave the example of, you know, in North Dakota, we, we know there's going to be an eight well pad. We know, you know, we know what the type curve is going to look like. We know right. what our, um, at where our capital spend is going to look like. Um, in Wyoming, um, it's, there's, you know, they're still drilling two well pads. They're still kind of yep. like testing things out. Um, you know, we need someone, you know, we, we need someone as sophisticated as, you know, Continental or Anschutz to come in and start with, you know, start a program. And I'm not saying the others aren't uh, sophisticated. Right. It's just that they just have smaller drilling programs. They have uh, smaller budgets. Yeah. And no, I mean, I think you're, you're, you're hitting on something that's, that's very clear is that it's, it's a little bit of the fly by nighters versus the staying power. And you, you have to have that of, I mean, we did have, I mean, I talk, I talk about it publicly a lot of, you know, when you saw the powder, when it was up and coming, I mean, you had the four, four dude management teams and everybody, you know, four engineers and somebody came from EOG and we started an EMP and we came into the powder and we had, they had made it in the Permian and they had flipped a couple wells and they tried to do this, the powder and, Oh, this is not the same play. Like this is the, the geology is complex. This is much harder. And so you could drill one well and it could be okay. And you could drill another well and it could be crap. Um, and so the ability to just flip this and also the timing, you know, when, I mean, I was interested in starting my own oil company in the powder, um, as you knew in like 2018. And that was a time where things were like hot and things were going and it was good. And then by the end of 2018, you know, we're looking at much lower ore price. So we were in the forties, I believe before, you know, Christmas Eve and the, it sort of lost its, it's, it's this, this glistening gleam. And, but the people who were, were through it, you know, were, were like a cotton continental wasn't in there yet. They bought Samson acre, Samson stuff. And then they bought Chesapeake. Um, right. but that was half the battle is that, I mean, I could write a dissertation on, you know, the evolution of the powder river basin and the play that maybe will come someday. Um, and it's hard cause I can, I remember, you know, you and I were, were probably in DC stuff together. We were giving presentations stuff, but I was in DC and, you know, talking about the Bakken and people were like, you know, I'm showing them production and I'm the EIA did not have production data. So they're showing production for North Dakota and it would be like a few hundred thousand barrels a day. And I'd be like, actually it's like 500,000 barrels a day. And people would look at me in DC and be like, what? And, um, and then I'd be like, and I was starting to play with decline curves and growth stuff and saying, Yes, it's, I mean, these wells are really consistent. And that was crazy because, you know, I'm in Oxford, I'm presenting these, a decline curve, you know, and somebody from a, you know, large foreign, com you know, com country in the Middle East would be like, that's ridiculous. You know, how can we believe that decline curve? And I'm like, have we ever seen a decline? Have you ever shown a decline curve from your large oil company out of this Middle East, you know, country? We've never seen one. But you show these decline curves to be like, thousand barrels a day, nice clean decline. And I think it's that there, that's a unique perspective because North Dakota, for all the criticism that that the Bakken now gets, is that there's not enough acreage and the inventory is running out. And instead, is the incredible consistency and the really great rock and the ability to, you know, now it's not, it's a lot of three fork stuff is doing great. And that, you know, I really encourage people to look at that productivity. It's just been fantastic. And so, to your point of being able to stay at 1.2 million barrels a day, that is really staying power. And then you get to the powder. And it's just a whole different animal. And it's not that it doesn't have growth potential, but um, you add in a lot of market complexities when you have different operators at different levels of their stages of, you know, capital expenditures and do they have the same powder? And then you add in crude price volatility and COVID and 
all this stuff. And so we did have a lot of, you know, the small private equity backed guys that were there pre COVID and then COVID happens. And I think that changed, that obviously changed a lot, you know, sure. our, I don't even know where some of those little guys, if they're, if they're doing anything, some of them are still there. And then you had the whole private equity model shift where people thought, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to package this stuff up. Maybe we'll buy another small private equity guy and then we'll just sell this to a big company. And it's like, okay, well now which big company are you going to sell this to? Um, and that got, I think that got really tricky. And that's where it's not that uh, you can have this debate on, you know, is the rock going to give it to you? Or you're going to have this, you know, when does it, you know, come off the map. And it's that, it's really that, do you have companies that are, have consolidated their acreage positions, are drilling consistently, um, and are able to have the same power to look through prices and sort of get their well cost down and bring in consistent well performance. And I think that was the biggest thing is getting well cost down and bringing in that consistent well performance. Because as you know, if you look at those, back in the day, look at those Turner wells, I mean, it'd be like three, three wells together and two would be awesome and one would suck. And you'd be like, okay, well, that's, that's fun. Um, and you start realizing <laughs> there's some geology there. Like you just have to deal with that. Well, that one sucking isn't so bad if uh, oil prices are higher and, you know, like, and your well costs are lower then all of a sudden the math starts making sense. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, yes, we can, we can, we can table that. I mean, you, you're yeah, welcome and, to and that's, you know, from, that's, I, I think it's, it's from a producer standpoint, like, um, you know, I, I, and again, like we come out, we have, you know, federally regulated, uh, tariffs. We can't right. you know, increase our prices. We can't decrease our prices. Um, uh, so when, you know, we connect and we're counting on, you know, three decent wells and two of them are good and one of them sucks, that's, you know, we take that hit, you know, even yep. though that, you know, even though the producer might say, Hey, we're going to make this work it, you know, all of a sudden, you know, we take, we ended up t taking that hit. And that's, that's one of the, uh, especially the, one of the things that we see in, in the powder is, and, you know, just the, the cause of like, the, it's just a higher risk profile. Yep. It's a higher risk profile. It's very competitive. Um, you know, and, but it is like, as you pointed out earlier, it's in our backyard. I literally, I literally can walk onto the roof of my, um, my, my office and see the powder river basin. It is hard yep. to resist, you know, going yeah. out because quite honestly some of these you know some of the wells we've hooked up are absolute you know barn burners and and you're like wow this is this is okay the powder's a real thing and then you next well you hook up is like yep kind of kind of disappointing and you're like oh maybe we're uh, yeah that's right we're still in the powder yep we're still in the powder that's it that's a good comment yeah i was um it was good to work it was good to work in it and it is an interesting play but i think um it's also something, I mean, just from a nerdy perspective, I don't think a lot of people appreciate is like, and you know, this, this, uh, the formations, right? A lot of these were conventional, you know, so we're attacking them from an unconventional standpoint of, of drilling horizontally and, 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 you know, uh, fracking them, but these were unconventional sandstones. So the stuff like, you know, the teapot was, was pretty easy. This was like, you know, there's, there's some formations in here that were great. Um, and they were consistent and you could, you know, pull up company. I'm going to, I'm going to, pull it out because I did this way before I ever worked at a company, but like look up Devin's teapot wells, you know, great. There's some really awesome teapot wells that are just, uh, you know, thousand barrels a day. Awesome. But then it's like, did you drill up all the teapots? Cause now, you know, now, now then you drill up all these conventional sandstones and then they go to the Turner and the Turner was harder because it sat below the Niobrara. So it's actually deeper, but it's also conventional sandstone, but it doesn't have, didn't have the consistent performance of say the teapot. And so you just add all this volatility and question marks in into it. And yes, as a midstream side and, and, you know, I have a previous life in doing a lot of midstream and, and downstream stuff. And it's a, it's a completely different business. I mean, you have to basically as a midstream guy, you have to be an upstream guy. You have to be really close to those wells and know them super close. Um, so yeah, I, I feel for you. Also, it's, it's gotta be exciting when you get three wells that come on consistent and, you know, you put the decline curve, they put the decline curve and everything matched up and right. um, it looks like it's going well. That is an exciting time when it happens. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can. I can imagine. So, so it's, it's interesting because like, you know, we, we, you know, um, we do, we do pay attention to what formation, you know, people are drilling and we try to, you know, look at like surrounding formations, how, how, how well, how, how well did the well do a mile away? Right. Um, 
you know, and, and we use that as a comparison. And oftentimes it's, you know, a mile away is, is in, apparently in, in, in geology is a long ways away. Um, you know, <laughs> and, yep. and it's a, it's a, you're in a completely different area. Um, so, you, you know, we even have like, it's, it's interesting because that's the data we have is just to see what other producers or other, right. uh, what, what the other well results have been in a certain area. And unfortunately, I think, you know, we probably, you know, I think we've passed on some, you know, some deals where maybe we shouldn't have, and we, we, we probably passed on some deals where we did our homework and, um, and said, Hey, we're not gonna, there's too much risk on this one for, for us. Let somebody else, you know, go, you know, pipe that up. And, and it's, it, it's interesting when I, I, you're talking about the different gel, I, it, what popped into my mind is like, yeah, I, I know the exploration companies are really focused on like the vertical, like Niagara, Turner, right. you know, teapot, yep. wh whatever it might be, you know, we run horizontally and so. You know, I'm focused more on like the differences between, you know, this is another interesting difference that um, between uh, North Dakota and Wyoming is in North Dakota, you have a bunch of farms. These are, you know, mm -hmm. uh, 500 acre farms. And so to build a mile, you're going to cross over, you know, five, six different farms and you have to get five, six different easements. In Wyoming, it might be just one ranch. You know, you yep. have these giant ranches and... <laughs> And, and so some of the landowners, you know, and they are, uh, you know, extremely uh, sophisticated. Mm -hmm. um, they have a lot of things going on. They have like, you know, wind, you know, wind turbines going up. They have solar farms going in. They have pipelines going, you know, going across them. Um, but, they, you know, again, you know, to hook up, you know, we're going to build five miles. We might have to just deal with one landowner. And yep. whereas North Dakota, it's. 20, 30, you know, 30 at a time. So it's, which do you a, think is easier? I feel like, in North, I, I'm going to, I feel like North Dakota has been easier in many ways. I feel like some, there's been, you know, landowners in Wyoming can be, you know, they can, they can hold out pretty hard. Well, as a fellow landowner, I, I don't uh -huh. want to speak, you know, you know, <laughs> but, but I will say that they are, uh, they are tough. They're sophisticated. Yep. Um, and, you know, they've had, um, you know, they, they've had years and years of, uh, years experience. And mo most of the, most of the ranchers are, you know, uh, have, have had these ranches in multiple generations. Yep. And, you know, I'll, I'll uh, g give you an example of, you know, uh, we were trying to, this is, this is years ago. This is probably t 10 plus years ago, but, uh, I, I remember we're, we're actually trying to abandon some, some, some pipe on, on a one landowners, uh, and, and the landowner wouldn't let us on. And we were like, we're trying to get off your property. Like, help us get off your property. And, you know, and finally they wanted it. They insisted this is, and this is going on for over a year, you know, and they, he wouldn't let us on the property. We're trying to, you know, get on the property to blow our lines out. Um, and finally, you know, they, he kept insisting, you know, to meet with me. And I was like, well, it, it took, it took a while to arrange. Okay. So anyway, they show up. We sit down in our conference room, start chatting, and um, and, and, and having having a wonderful talk for like thirty minutes about you know whatever. And finally, I just asked him. I said, "What's I don't understand? You know, we're trying to get off your property. What's the what's the problem?" And he goes, <laughs> "He goes, your grandfather condemned across my grandfather's <laughs> ranch back in 1967." I was like, "Wow, that's." <laughs> But it's, it's amazing. Like, you know, I've, I've never, you know, you get hard landowners, you know, everywhere, but, uh, mm -hmm. I'd never seen one that had, you know, these are multi-generational ranches, yeah, yep. there's family lore, there's, yep. uh, um, there, there's a lot of things that go on, you know, in there. So it's, well, uh, we all know Wyoming's one big small town. Um, so it's just, you're, you're connected to some degree, uh, it, absolutely. no matter what, absolutely. Um, which is which? Which is the the good and bad? Um, but that no, that's that's a great story. Um, so okay, you know we we've uh we've run through a lot of more more time uh, quite easily. So um, Tad, this may be something you're comfortable or not comfortable talking about, but I am always intrigued with um, the state of play and and taking into account what we just talked about. The geological complexity of Wyoming is is part of why Wyoming production is um 
262,000 barrels a day and not 500,000 barrels a day. Um, and the state of the company, you know, unique companies, et cetera. But that being said, you know, just south of Wyoming is Colorado. And Colorado is a completely different animal in terms of an, being an oil and gas state. Um, this is not an oil, a, a state politically friendly to oil and gas. This is a you know, state that has you know, 452,000 barrels a day of production reluctantly. It's a bit like you know, the Biden administration anti-oil and gas, but having nearly 13 million barrels a day oil and gas production in the US. I mean, Colorado has this production, but it's not because Polis or any of the regulators are, are you know, helping uh, the industry actually get permits to drill and complete wells. Right. And, you know, there are, I, I'm, I can't be the only person. I know there are a lot of folks that look at this and look at Wyoming and being, you know, obviously I was born there, have family there, um, care deeply about the state. But I mean, and Wyoming has uh, the largest surface coal mines in the world, um, you know, has a wealth of natural resources from coal to natural gas to oil, and also understands it has been generationally through booms and busts, like the state uh, does really well in many respects with revenue on education, probably because you have a lower population. But I mean, it's pretty, to me, looking Colorado versus Wyoming, I'm always curious why Wyoming has not stepped up to the plate to really grab more activity from the DJ and say, you know, you can't do business here in Colorado. We're happy to take your business. We are state open for business. We care about, we care about our natural resources. We obviously want to drill and produce them properly, but come here, you know, come play in the powder. Yes, it's a hard play, but like we welcome your business. And I just, I don't, I haven't seen that personally stepped up enough, but I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on that. Um, um, I have, if you don't uh, want to tackle that, you go ahead. I mean, no, me I know. have uh, uh, two different thoughts on that. Um, and number one, uh, you have to remember half of, half of, uh, the surface acreage in, uh, in Wyoming is owned by the federal government. Yes. It's that's BLM, true. it's Forest Service. Land. Yep. Um, you know, I know we went to, uh, a federal lease sale and the last minute they just cancel it. That's kind of, you know, that, and that, you know, that basically is a result, direct result of, uh, the, the administration. Yep. Um, so I think that is a challenge right there. Um, not necessarily, it has nothing to do with the, 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 you know, state politics and on the flip side though, um, I'd also say that, you know, from a midstream standpoint, we were, we were, and I can't get too, too much into it, but we were, uh, competing on a, uh, a, a terminal, um, and, one of the risks that the customer pointed out was, you know, the the competition. It's a rail terminal in Colorado versus a rail terminal in Wyoming. We had to build stuff in, in Wyoming. The one of the risks that the customer looked at was, hey, we're worried that Colorado can't even get their permit. Yep. We got our permit before we even, you know, before we even got an agreement to, uh, uh, you know. To, before we got an agreement on, on, on the terminal. So I think that's, that's, you know, that's one example I think of where, you know, Wyoming is, is definitely a uh, better place to have. Uh, if you're building stuff, Wyoming is right. definitely a better place to be. Absolutely. And I, so I agree with your premise, but when th there are constraints, uh, federal government owns 50% of the land uh, or at least the surface and, and, and then on the plus side, you know, I know we've won deals simply because, you know, uh, Wyoming does encourage, they have a lot simpler uh, permitting process than, say, Colorado. Right. Um, that's an example. Okay. You know, yep. we've actually won a big terminal deal. So, Okay, that's great clarity. Really, appreciate, really appreciate that. And, and couldn't agree more. I think that, you know, there's things where on the pro-business side works out really well to get a terminal. Uh, the federal land, I want to ask about that. But um, do you think that's... the before we, I ask about, you know, federal land comparisons. So I think that that is really important. I mean, we've seen the Biden administration has really the, the lease sales and federal land has come off. And I think it's important to appreciate, you know, how states like Wyoming have been severely impacted that like, like Alaska as well of, you know, sure. people want, you know, Wyoming has definitely lost business because the Biden administration is not uh, the federal leases and the, you know, sales, but also just permitting has declined considerably um, from the previous administration to the, to the Biden administration, even just re-upping permits have basically gone to zero. Um, and that's a big deal for all kinds of companies. I mean, Oxy is a company that notes that publicly and has been noting it for years about that inability to re-up a permit. Oxy is present in the powder as well as, as, well as Colorado. Um, but I, I think from a 
I'm curious as to, um, and this could just be Wyoming politics. I mean, we, I talked to you about this on offline, you know, previously, and I had my own thoughts on it, but do you think, I mean, could Wyoming be doing more from the, I I don't know what different entities you have, you know, the Wyoming pipe used to be a Wyoming pipeline authority. Now you have the executive, there's been some restructuring with all that within Wyoming, but from an energy perspective of just saying, Hey, let's go, you know, we're open for business. And I think that let's go helps a lot from, you know, you have the geological complexities. This is the Mm -hmm. oil business. We have all the oil prices, but you do sort of need that let's go mentality um, in order to get that ramped up and to say, Hey, Colorado, you suck. You're not permitting. Um, you don't have the environment to do business. You have great geology and a much, you know, and we have a lot of consistency in the DJ and fantastic <clears throat> geology. But, you know, hey, we have this. And I'm just not sure maybe that I, I don't feel like that's been done. And but here's my first reaction to that. Um, I'm, quite honestly, from a private uh, private industry standpoint, I don't want government, you know, government leading the way, whether it's state or federal. That's, That's fair. Like they're, you know, uh, having them just, you know, uh, I, I think they have the policies in place, I, you know, and they're not monkeying with stuff. I appreciate that. Um, you know, North Dakota is a lot more. Um, uh, I, I think North Dakota has done a, a great job being more provo- uh, promotional, but at the same yeah. time, there's also instances where, you know, the, uh, you know, North Dakota gets gets a little bit ahead of itself and like gets um, I don't want to get into specific examples, but like um, I am I appreciate the non-interventionist uh, government in Wyoming. How about, how about uh, that? OK, that, that's fair. No. And I and we're probably talking about we're splitting hairs on different things because there's a perspective that and I think also actually the uh, the state of oil matters a lot. And and mm-hmm. the volatility that Wyoming's experience has probably impacted uh, regulators, um, and not just regulators, but people in offices that are, you know, helping on the business side. Um, if, you know, if you don't have a booming oil play, it's hard to be like, oh, my gosh, we have a, it, it isn't booming. So you have to you have to navigate that, too. Um, so my hands up in the air to help these folks because um, I'm, I'm all in on making it go better. But can you give us uh, there's two things I want to ask about before we close, because this has been fantastic, Tad. I really appreciate it. Um, so the Biden federal land piece, and I want to clarify this because I think you could give a little, can you give a little bit more color on, you know, the federal land in Wyoming and how bad has that the impact, you know, is it just on paper what we're seeing? How bad is the impact of, you know, the slowdown in permitting on federal land, Ben, um, in the state of Wyoming? And the last question I do want to ask is on Dakota access, because I think it wouldn't be fair to listeners to not ask that question. There's a big, I'm going to be covering that more in future podcasts. Um, and, uh, but it's a, it's a pretty big issue of potentially openings with Dakota access, which could be game changing on the pipeline side. But, um, we'll start with the, the, the federal land piece and, and Wyoming and what's real and what's not real. Um, okay. So, uh, just for perspective, when I started, you know, 20 years ago in, in the industry, um, and we, you know, just, and I'm going to come at it from a midstream pers- perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if we ran into it, if we had, if we were building a piece of pipe and we had an option of going left or right, right was, you know, private landowner, left was the uh, uh, federal landowner. We'd always want to go um, across the private landowner because generally it just happened faster. Now, yep. deal, dealing with the feds, it would take a long, if we got, you know, an angry landowner, you know, that just didn't want a piece of pipe on their, on their, on their property, you know, okay, we, the feds might take some, some time, but you knew you're going to get it. Right. That, uh, since the, I would say since the Obama administration, that has completely changed that, that, that is a new risk that like, you know, where it's gone from, yeah, it might take some time. You have to go through some headache. It's, you have to jump through the hoops. Um, but you knew at the end, you're going to get, you know, you're going to get your, get an easement to, to build out. Now it's like, there's a legitimate risk that, and it's really, you know, uh, you don't know if, if you're going to be able to uh, build a piece of pipe. You simply just don't know. Um, now, in Wyoming, a lot, you know, fortunately, a lot of the control is at the is, is at the local level, which can be good and can be bad. Um, but again, it's it's in some cases, it's you just don't know if you're going to be able to be able to build. And that that becomes like and it, with when 50 percent of, the, uh, of the, the surface is is owned by the federal government, that becomes a big risk. I mean, right. you're crossing whether it's Forest Service, BLM. 
um, you're crossing them everywhere you go. And it is, it is a significant risk now. And that's, and you know, that's like, you know, how we, you know, we have to build to stay in business. Right. So that's, um, you know, when we look at that, we look, look at it very, very seriously. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a really good, really good perspective. Um, and I think that uh, people have to appreciate that because then if you compound that with the volatility of a geologic complexity and the ability to get plays up and going, when you compound that with additional regulatory or with a, the federal hurdles, it's, it can throttle. Um, I mean, it can really throttle the ability to lay pipe and do stuff and get stuff off the ground. And if you don't have that midstream aspect, uh, you can't really have, you can't have the upstream. I mean, you guys are the critical piece of that. So, um, no, that's great. That's great perspective on the, uh, do you, have you heard from folks complaining that, Hey, we're not getting our permits to drill and therefore, Hey, Tad, we can't, we're not going to be able to, you know, we told you we're going to bring on 10 wells, uh, but we're not going to, because you know, our, the slowness in the permitting is just so slow. I, I asked that because, you know, for a lot of operators I've actually talked to while they complained about the permitting, they're still, readily they had a lot of permits you know together um it's more the future stuff that they're concerned about yeah i think that's fair i think that's fair you know i i'm thinking of uh one place in particular that you know um one of our customers operator um very sophisticated um you know they they came in had some you know incredible incredible well results and but the, the the problem is is that 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 it, it's the whole thing is just slowed down. So, right. but we're, you know, we're moving forward. We know that there's, you know, two big operators out there. Um, the other big operator is simply just kind of wait until they get all their, you know, permits. And so, you know, yeah, it'll come, maybe it's going to be slow. Maybe they have to wait for a different administration. Um, but it is on federal property and, you know, um, you know, they just, it, it's just, it's, it, Sometimes it's timing. Sometimes they just can't get the permits. Right. Yeah. Uh, I pr- really appreciate that color. Okay. So last question, um, Dakota access. And right. I, and admittedly, I have not got to dive into this cause I just did, did this podcast. And I've been so under, under the water with some, some big deliverables that have nothing to do with Dakota access. Um, uh, I Dakota access, apparently the EIS, um, the environmental impact statement is apparently being reopened, which means that, um, which was, you know, Dakota Access is a pipeline. We all know it was very controversial. Uh, getting this flowing shouldn't have been as controversial, but it's flowing crude oil. Um, it was a big deal for, it was a big deal for North Dakota to sort of really actually in the Wilson Basin to actually flow this and have ample, in addition to your pipes, have ample pipeline capacity and really a different route. You know, p- North Dakota access goes, you know, from North Dakota to the Midwest and then down to the Gulf Coast, which is a huge deal to bypass Cushing, Oklahoma. And now apparently this little piece um, is getting reopened for an environmental impact statement, which um, is really serious. And I'll be diving that into future podcasts, but it's really serious. If that's up for grabs, could this, you know, in theory, this pipeline could be shut down. And then there's whole legal issues of opening up other other pipelines. So, I, you know, whatever you're comfortable on that subject of tackling that, I would I would love to just know any any thoughts you could share or, or opinions or anything. I would love to hear it. OK, so here's here's the way I look at it is is is, is the, the the overall context, again, is regulatory certainty. Yep. You know, that's. As an infrastructure company, that's what we need. And you know, reopening EISs after you've already put 100% of your capital into the literally into the ground um, is is incredibly, in my mind, just irresponsible. I don't think this administration is is going to um, is is going to do anything. And and the reason is is like we have uh, you know Dakota Access serves uh, North Dakota. They pump about half the Bakken, um, you know, and if with prices at 80 plus dollars, even though they've come back down from 90 in the last couple of weeks, um, the impact of shutting in effectively yeah, half huge. the Bakken is going to have a huge impact on, uh, on WTI, on gas prices, on, you know, on voters. And I don't think the, I can't imagine, let me say this, I've been wrong before, but I can't imagine the administration would want to go into, um, uh, make a decision where they shut down the, you know, shut down 600,000 barrels a day of production in the United States um, and impact, you know, gasoline prices going into 
you know, going into an election. That, and, no, that's you know, a, that's really good perspective. I like that. Yeah, I it would be to, to in my mind it, it like they they might get like some cheers on the you know from the far left, but um, at the end of the day, you know, you know, and Biden's like you know Biden's very you know looks at gasoline prices and realizes that's a big that's a big chunk, and if 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 they want high get if they think high gasoline prices is going to help them get reelected. <laughs> Have at her, you know, but yeah. I, so I, I mean, that's I, I think that's great, great color. Um, I mean, I think that there's there's probably more talk on it, and I think there's some risk. Um, there's always risk and uncertainty, but that's a, that's good perspective. Of I, I don't actually think they're as educated on hydrocarbons and oil and gas and, and probably infrastructure and pipelines as we hope they are. Um, unfortunately, so that's the job of people like ourselves to do that. But so but Dakota Access is flowing. That's half. They're flowing. Um, What's that nameplate capacity? It's over a million barrels a day, or the nameplate capacity is under a million barrels a day, and they're flowing. Yeah, I, I mean, six, seven hundred, eight hundred thousand barrels a day. I, I don't, I don't know the actual numbers, but if I okay. have to guess, it's about six hundred thousand. Okay, okay, six hundred thousand barrels a day. And what is your, if you're allowed to share that, what is your uh, capacity? Do you, can you share a rough number? If you can't, that's fine. Uh, I mean, rough capacity called uh, four hundred. Okay, yeah, and, that's you know we're we're you know, 350 or so. And okay. the good, the good thing about, let me say this, the, the good thing about coming out of COVID is we did ended up, end up finishing our projects. So we ended up, we ended up having, you know, new steel from North Dakota all the way down to, to Guernsey. Uh, we've replaced, um, or we, we have, uh, yeah, we, we just ended at that. We have new steel all the way from North Dakota to Guernsey. And that's, I think from our standpoint, that's a, that's a, that's a big deal. Uh, yeah, no, that's, that's that a huge can, deal. Yeah, that ensures we can you know operate for another fifty plus years um, with yep. deal, with the infrastructure that we got. Yeah, well, Tad, you have been um, a fantastic guest. Um, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast and talk about companies with staying power. I mean, you guys have it, um, and you know you show it well on the especially on the midstream side. And for a first time podcast person, you know you crushed it. So um, I'm sure you'll have plenty of people asking you to do it, but I, I, you're a, a friend and a colleague um, and uh, it's your, the color and commentary is just awesome. So I, I can't thank you enough. Well, th th it's been fun. Thank you. Thank you, Tricia. Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks. Bye guys.